Oh my God, this is so weird. We never, ever see each other when we record. And it very much sucks that we cannot be in the same room because when we typically do a live show, it's so good to feed off the energy. But before we start, let me just say hello to everyone who's watching us live. I am coming to you from Tovangar, uh, which is the traditional territory of the Tongva people, colonized as Los Angeles. Nora. Hi, everyone. I am coming to you from my home in the traditional territory of the Huron-Wendat Nation, uh, also known as Quebec City. And it is so wonderful to be with you tonight. Sandy, it is so weird to see you. Um, It is one thing to do a live (laughs) show when we're in the same room. Uh, It's a very different experience. I mean, I'm, I'm not in my cave. You're not in your cave. You also sound great, which is amazing because really? the, the, the episode that we released on Tuesday, for those of you who are weekly listeners, you may have heard that Nora sounded terrible. She had a bit of a cold. So it sounds like you're recovering. Yeah, I'm totally recovering. Uh, I feel great. I feel great. I mean, my kid's best friend's brother got COVID. So I feel as good as one could feel with the COVID being that close to us. But um, I don't think we're talking about COVID tonight. I think that tonight is a COVID-free zone, (laughs) right? We're in Vancouver tonight where there's not as as much COVID. I mean, COVID's everywhere. No COVID zone. No COVID. (laughs) (laughs) So this is uh, really wild for us because um, not only is it our first podcast festival and we're headlining and that's really, really amazing, um, but it's also a really good opportunity for us to... Uh, connect with the audience because what's a live show? What's the point of a live show if it's not actually doing uh, that audience connection? And and Sandy, in the last couple of weeks, we've done a lot of talking about um, the show, how we do the show, how do we come up with our topics? I mean, I think that's the top the question that people ask the most. Like, Sandy, how do we figure out what to talk about? Well, yeah. <laughs> and so let's talk about that. Let's give folks a little. We're going to give you all a little bit into the how we all start, how do we, how we started, and how we think about these things each week. But let me just let you all know right now, we want to hear from you throughout this live discussion that we're having. So (laughs) what we do in order to pick our topics is exactly this. Let's just do the whole performance. We'll do the same thing that we typically do. Okay. Okay. Nora, do you have any ideas? What should we talk about this week? What happened this week? Uh, oh wait, Justin was that Trudeau the phone call? Being... Were you trying to phone call me? Oh, sorry, my bad. Okay, yeah, I was. Hey, Nora, yeah. <laughs> what should we talk hey, about this hey. week? Uh, Justin Trudeau did something really annoying and useless again. Maybe, but we talk talked about, about Justin Trudeau being useless and annoying just last week, so perhaps we should switch it up. Trump did something a little useless. No, Trump is is just he's just de- depressing. Like there's no there's no good. I mean, should in we Trump. talk about how um, what Trump did, which is dumb, uh, uh, impacts Canadians? Maybe a little bit. Yeah, that could be super good. Actually, I think what people really are wondering about is like what kind of organizing. Hey, let's talk about let's organizing. Talk about organizing, <laughs> and let's talk about how organizing can impact this really important thing that happened on Tuesday, and that's about as long as we take to figure out what we're going to talk about and literally how we do it. Nora and I are big consumers of the news 
And um, not just the news, we're like embedded in communities of organizers and activists worldwide, which helps us uh, to really understand what is happening in our world, whether it's locally or globally, even if the news hasn't reported it. And so, I mean, literally, that's how we do it. A lot of people also ask us how it is that we know what we know. Nora, how is it that we know what we know? Well, we have an episode on that. So I do do encourage people to search Sandy, Nora, how do you know what you know? Um, One of the things about knowing how media operates and knowing what is being left out of the conversation means that you actually can anticipate things. I I mean, I think we were tagged a couple of times today with people saying, oh, my God, Sandy, Nora, you called this. You called that. The, the conservative governments are not locking people down. You called that nothing was going to be coming out of Ottawa. You called that there wasn't going to be any support and that the CERB is, you know, inefficient, um, insufficient and and uh, and people are being harmed by being forced to pay back all of the all the, the, the aid that they've been given. And part of it is just paying attention. And it's paying attention in a way that listens for what isn't being said. That's really, really important. I was listening to The Current this morning, as I always do. For some reason, I mean, I'm just even though even though you kind of hate it, I kind of. I mean, it's my hatred level for the current is uh, is very deep these days. I have to say, and um, and they had this entire conversation with three people. One who's a pollster, so not sure what is the point of listening about the polls, right? They had a conversation about how we're not going to have anybody get vaccinated because only two thirds of people are willing to have this non-existent vaccine. Okay. Not super useful. The second person was Susan Delacourt, who's the senior columnist for the Toronto star. I'm not sure what that means, but her, the, uh, like not adding too much to the conversation. The third was the director of the, of an Institute to call the Institute for the study of Canada. I think, uh, uh, I think it's McGill. I could be wrong, but the conversation was about the pandemic and aren't people tired and, and how do we convince it's so hard to convince people to do the right thing. And I'm listening to this and thinking, Okay, I go to the grocery store and every single person is wearing a mask. Like that is mm-hmm. night and day from where we were last year. We managed to do that. We managed to change people's opinions and minds on how to stand away from each other. Don't get too close to one. Like there has been massive changes to our behavior and the current focused only on personal responsibility. And so what happens when you focus on, on personal responsibility? Uh, we forget literally everything else about the pandemic, how it's injuring people in the workplaces, injuring racialized communities more disproportionately uh, in relation to white communities. You know, in in recent Stats Canada data in British Columbia, communities that were not white were impacted by a, a mortality rate that was 10 times white communities in British Columbia. Now that, that was a division that's way, way bigger than the rest of anywhere else in Canada. I mean, there were fewer deaths. And so with fewer deaths, you're going to have bigger stretches within the data. And I look at this and I think, where is the, where is the national conversation on this? And so when you're looking to see for these like things and and then they're missing and then you point them out, that's how, that's how, you know, that's how we know what we know is we know we can anticipate that this is coming next. And of course, with COVID, this has continuously come up and again and again and again. The other thing that helps us know what we know is uh, looking at the world from a particular framework. And I know that what informs me, a lot of what informs uh, the way that I look at a situation is understanding how power moves. Every decision that's made, the way that we live our lives 
is so, so influenced by who's in power and how power is operating, where power wants resources to go, like money and so on. And so way back, way back early in the pandemic, Nora and I predicted that sooner or later, um, the the powers that be, the provinces, the, the, the government are going to start using uh, police forces to find people or arrest people who are not following these ordinances that, um, you know, the way that the government has put them in place is like, this is your individual responsibility instead of making it as easy as possible for people to, um, to, to, to follow the recommendations by, for example, implementing paid sick days. And we see, I don't know if you've seen this news, Nora, uh, a few days ago, it came out that uh, Manitoba is uh, employing a p- private security firm to, to assist in, um, in doling out fines for people who are not following um, the, the public health mandates, which is like, gosh, <laughs> we are in a pandemic, we're in an economic crisis. People don't have uh, the money to pay these fines, number one. Number two, the people who are breaking, a lot of the people who are breaking these ordinances of, you know, uh, not not going to work when they're sick or uh, properly social distancing, a lot of that has to do with um, the type of resources you have in your own life to be able to make those decisions, no matter what we've been hearing on the news about, oh, man, it's just it's a it's a weird population over here who refuses to wear masks or it's youth who are continuing to have parties. The number one places where people are we just said we weren't going to talk about covid, but here we are. The number one places <laughs> where people are are um, are are, uh, are getting infected is in, in their workplaces. It's in their workplaces. Um, and so understanding mm-hmm. how power dynamics works and how the governments like to pass off uh, the responsibility for making um, uh, the best sorts of decisions, the most resourced source, uh, sorts of positions, uh, decisions, the decisions that require resources to implement. A lot of the times our governments pass off those responsibilities to an individual and then try to enforce it through the police. So we we could we could tell that that was something that was going to happen. Well, also, I mean, what happens when police have nothing to do? Uh, they get violent. They get more violent. I mean, a lot. Like, if you've ever met a cop who's bored, like it's, <laughs> it, you know, maybe maybe not all of our listeners have that kind of experience with police, but we're here for you uh, to let you know what happens when a police officer gets bored. He gets violent, um, oftentimes, right? Um, you mentioned Manitoba, and I think Manitoba is a really good example of of what happens when you have a government that just doesn't care, like at all. Right. So they are triaging people in the parking lot of hospitals. Right. There's not enough space in emergency wards. And I live in Quebec. Right. Quebec has had the worst go of the pandemic. And in the in the spring, you know, we had daily double digit deaths. It was really horrible. A couple of days where deaths actually went into the hundreds. Um, Not not many. Um, But the thing that at least our government did was they put money into into resources to hire as many uh, orderlies as they could very quickly. They paid them to go to school. They didn't force them to pay to go to school. They didn't force them to pay back 
they're, they're, they paid them to go to school. They have to go into the, the workforce right after. But then they also built a temporary hospital within an arena. And so you look at what's happening, the, the, the inaction in Manitoba, and it's like, really you you got you've got money to hire private security to harass people but you don't you don't have any money for tents to create temporary sheltered hospitals it's it's really unacceptable i you know what we we have talked about covid as you said as i said we're not going to talk about covid tonight um so i will get to some of the questions but i think that especially as this pandemic goes on you know i shared this on twitter today a friend of mine who is not a political activist. She's, um, she works in insurance. Uh, I was at her house, uh, socially distanced outside. And she was saying to me, she's like, God, it's, it just feels as if the government is trying to make us want to go back to normal so badly. And at the same time, give us nothing that all we can do is cling to going back to normal as soon as possible. And the point of doing that is to make sure that we don't demand changes to the things that we know need to change. And so rather than paying us to stay home, rather than giving us food so that we can socially isolate or reduce production, uh, manufacturing, uh, corporate activity in a way that allows workers to socially distance, we are just being forced to suffer through this. It's disproportionate suffering, of course, just so all of all we want is to go back to normal. And so that the second we go back to normal, we accept everything that we that was laid bare to be not good, not normal, uh, about our status quo. And that's, that's really dangerous. And so people listening tonight, I hope that you all can be those champions to resist that kind of logic and make sure that when people say, we just want to go back to normal, of course we will, we won't go back to normal. Um, there's already people that have made a lot of money off this pandemic and they aren't going to go back to normal. They're going to freaking bathe themselves in $20 bills or something tonight. And we have to figure out a way to take their money from them so that they bathe in water like the rest of us, please. My God. Shit. Yeah, yeah. Shit. Shit. I think we can say that, right? We can say that. There's no CRTC. I don't know if we're it's allowed. It's a podcast um. festival. That's why you do podcasts. That's why CBC's gone into the podcast world, right? Because they've been like, oh, we got to do Shit's Creek, but fuck flats. And we can't say that with the CRTC, right? This gives me a good opportunity to go through some of the comments. So first of all... Vicky, uh, thank you so much uh, for loving Nora's uh, tweets. <laughs> I know Nora was in Twitter jail recently for telling a bunch of TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, uh, to fuck off. Um, and uh, Twitter put her in jail for that. I don't know why. Uh, it's a, a terrible thing. But uh, I think it's important to mention that because today is also the Trans Day of Remembrance or Trans Day of Resilience um, and also Trans Awareness Week. And of course, uh, Nora and I, and we hope all of our listeners, um, uh, understand what our responsibilities are to fight for trans liberation and to protect trans folks in our lives and trans folks who are not in our lives, not yet, and to, to understand the crucial role that they play in our society in uh, pushing for a new world, imagining a new world, and radically uh, being themselves in the face of such hatred harm and danger and we have a responsibility in that and so Nora welcome back to Twitter and and thanks for telling the shit heads off and a question from Jennifer Mackey tell us the story behind the music of the show 
Uh, so the music is um, done by um, a friend of mine who's one of the world's best uh, free jazz pianists. His name is John Camille Farah. He's based in Berlin right now. And uh, the opening and closing track are from the same album. I believe it's the album that's called From Carthage to Rome. And he's a Palestinian Bramptonian uh, musician. So <laughs> folks from, yeah, there you go. I'm, Sandy and I both have Brampton connections. Um, and I mean, that's kind of how I know John. Um, and and I will say, um, look up his music for sure. He does a lot of um, uh, classical stuff as well, harpsichord and organ. And um, and that last track is a track called the, called Jinju Dervish, uh, which he wrote in Jinju in, uh, in South Korea. And it is um, one of my favorite tracks. I mean, like of all music, I just love it. It's got such a great energy and to see him play it live is really amazing because he plays with like multiple, he has to play with multiple keyboards and there's lots of loops and yeah, check out John, John Camille Farah. He's really awesome. And also John is a sweetheart. He's a really big fan of the podcast. So he might be tuning in even though it's like 2 a.m. in Berlin. Thank you for that music, John. Yeah. Um, I, the next question from Gwen is, I think, um, is is such a, is it, it's a question that I, I mean, I'll just tell everyone so you know we can like surprise you. So Sandy, Sandy, how do you manage to consume so much news and not? I mean, the comments does not get overloaded, but I would say like and not explode in the middle of the <laughs> random street in Los Angeles. Well, um, who says that I'm not exploding? <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of, I don't know, Westwood in, in uh, LA. Part of, you know, uh, everything else that I do around activism is how I respond to the news and how frustrated uh, the news can make me and uh, how I need to feel as though I have some sort of power over the news because I do have some sort of power over the news and I do have some sort of power over the way that society moves and over the way um, that uh, that politicians or power moves. I can have power over that. And so when I get uh, really down or I'm feeling like um, intense uh, rage within my chest, um, I get to work. And that's a, that's a lot of it. Another big piece of it is uh, uh, goes back to Nora and my history of organizing. We we really learned um, our chops in activism in the student movement. If you were uh, active in the Canadian student movement in the knots, people say that right, the, the knots in the period. It's the knots. The knots, like, <laughs> yeah. dude. Whatever, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> in the odds. I, I mean, you're probably, if you were involved, you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> if you were involved in the Canadian student movement from the year 2000 to 2010, that was a really intense year decade of organizing. I often people, people are often asking me like, how do you, how do you do so much? How do you have so much output? And I'm like, Oh, for like, I don't know, five or six years of my life, I worked like from 9 a.m. to 3.30 a.m. on a regular basis. That was just like my regular, <laughs> that was just my regular day, no holidays, mm -hmm. never spent holidays at home except for maybe Christmas because I was doing so much organizing. That was the expectation that we set for ourselves at that time. And so some, and some of it is that we just, we just trained ourselves up to do it that way, which, you know, looking back was probably a bad thing, but there was, <laughs> there, there was some benefits to it as well. 
I don't know. What, what do you say? How would you answer that question? How do you not get overloaded? Well, I mean, anyone that reads my stuff on Twitter will know that I'm overloaded literally 100 to- like percent of the time. I'm never not <laughs> overloaded. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, and the pandemic's really, really hard because um, one of the ways that I deal with it is um, talking to people and meeting people and organizing and and letting that kind of pressure and passion that's like really deep down inside of my soul kind of just ah, come out and talk like in, in conversation and exciting electrifying events and organizing and so you know it's been eight months more than eight months of not being able to really do any of that of course I've been involved with some organizing and we're trying to do a couple of things that we can but it's not the same and so that's really really hard I think that the other uh, thing that I find very helpful is that like I'm I, I I can't be disappointed by politicians. It it's impossible for a politician to disappoint me. Like I have no expectations. Even the politicians that I respect the most, politicians whose campaigns I've worked on, uh, even if they come out and say something that's like not great, I I am just like, okay, they're a politician. I mean, what's like what do we expect? Right. So that's a really important thing is to really like <laughs> I'm going to just quote the Bible for everybody right now. Uh, the, my, my, fa- <laughs> my favorite passage in the Bible Ooh. is, um, yeah, is, uh, I know this is, this is a live show. So people are going to learn <laughs> stuff about us, all the Bible verses that we know, right? Uh, my, my favorite quote in the Bible is, uh, is this, it's religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this to care for widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And the, the first time I heard that I was an organist, I was playing the organ at a church and I had to sit through the same mass four times, right? If you're in the Catholic church, you do the exact same service four times in a row for all the people that come oh to God. it. Right. And, and so this, I know it's like, I did that when I was 18, right? You want to know what the worst job to do hungover is? It's that it's singing at eight o'clock in the morning for a church full of people. And you just want to die. And the priest looks at you and is like, Whoa, were you at Nashville North last night? And he's like, I obviously was like, I want to die right now. Um, shout out to the priest I work for, who I think is like the Bishop of Cornerbrook, Newfoundland right now or something, but he was actually super cool. It's I, so I listened to this over and over, right. To keep to like religion. So let's drop that religious that is pure and, and uh, undefiled before God is this. So let's say like a living in a good way, a good life, activism, being true to yourself, uh, uh, that is pure and undefiled is this is to keep you, yourself unstained from the world is to keep yourself like with enough distance from all of the garbage that's going around you and to not have it affect you. And you have to create it. Maybe it's a barrier. Maybe it's a, maybe it's like you physically, like physically have some sort of distance. That's kind of what I've created in Quebec city. <laughs> like I'm pretty physically distanced from some of this stuff. Um, but that's, that's how I live my life. And so I consume all the news that I can, um, because I expect the news to be bad and I work really, really hard to, to literally keep myself unstained from the world. Okay, these are really good questions that are coming in. So um, I'm just going to pick the next one at random. <laughs> Someone, okay. Vicky, Vicky says, did you see the video of Patrick Brown, the Brampton mayor, who uh, Vicky says she didn't know that uh, he or she or they or he did not know that uh, Patrick Brown was from the Progressive Conservative Party, but he stood up for the workers and went as far as to demand sick days and talked about racialized workers. Yes, I saw the video. I shared the video on Twitter, but I want everybody to know that before I shared the video on Twitter, my hand 
was over the cursor on the retweet button for a good, I don't know, 30 seconds as I thought to myself, <laughs> not too sure this guy <laughs> and he's a sexual predator. Um, but you know, he, he is the mayor. Yep. I thought, okay, he is, um, you know, a public figure who has a lot of responsibility here. I will share this. <laughs> and I think, um, the quote tweet that I put was he is right because I couldn't bring myself <laughs> to say anything more. So yes, I did see that. <laughs> and I mean, <sighs> Sure. I, you know, like, should we be happy about that? Maybe. But like, that is, that's like literally the bare minimum. <laughs> it's like, oh, he recognized that, uh, you know, working class people are being hit hard. Cool. Um, he could have put that out in like May, <laughs> April. Uh, he says that people should have paid sick days. Well, he's part of a party that is really against them, number one. So I hope he's having those conversations with the people in his party uh, that, that need to be changing the party policy to implement those sick days. And two, again, duh, like that. I mean, the, the Liberal Party before in Ontario, um, where Patrick Brown is, had implemented uh, or had uh, talked about or had implemented 10 paid sick days. And, you know, the Ford government has no interest in that. And it's such an easy, obvious thing that should be happening during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So easy and obvious. So, I, you know, should we be applauding the Brampton mayor for saying the bare minimum? No, we should be applauding three-year-olds and four-year-olds for understanding the bare minimum. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Perhaps seven and eight year olds. Do do your twins understand the bare minimum, Nora? <laughs> do they get Do they get that sick days make sense? Do they understand that they should stay home when they're sick? Yeah, I mean they want to stay home all the time, so they might not be the best gauge of um, of, of political <laughs> decision making. I think though that underlying in this question is this idea that the PCs like it's surprising that a PC politician would mention the racialized impact of COVID. And I want people to, to, to actually maybe dial back the surprise on that because the, 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 the progressive conservatives, conservatives in a lot of parts of this country really understand that, that the path to victory passes through engaging with non-white communities and the conservatives do this audaciously. I mean, this was we talked about this on a, on a recent episode. Like they don't care if they're going to get laughed out of whatever space that they're in. They're going to show up. They're going to show up with their two conservative friends who are members of the community. And they'll either be like kind of looked at weird or maybe accepted or maybe laughed out of there. But they don't care. They're, they actually organize in communities where they know that they have to get reelected. And Brampton, I mean, Brampton is such an important city um, for like Eastern Canada, because all of just logistics pass through Brampton. And we talked about this also on the, on the podcast. Um, but you know, you can draw parallels to other similar cities all across Canada, where there's high concentration of industrial workers, working class that is not white, um, that there's a majority of low paid, precarious, uh, maybe undocumented workers basically look wherever Amazon wants to set up a new fac a factory or whatever. That's like a really good indication of it's, if that's a, the kind of city and COVID has been absolutely brutal in, in those in those workplaces. COVID has absolutely been brutal. And so you should look at Patrick Brown and not necessarily say, is it surprising that the mayor of Brampton, who's a shithead, actually said something less shitheadly than I expected? Or you could say, whoa, 
if the shithead Patrick Brown can say that, why don't we hear this on the CBC? Why don't we hear this on CTV? Why don't we hear this coming out of Justin Trudeau's mouth every single time he opens his mouth? Why don't we hear this from John Horgan, right? John Horgan, who's like got black friends, right? Or no, he didn't say, he didn't say that. He said he was color. He doesn't see color. He's colorblind. Right. That's yeah, what it was. Right. Sorry. I mean, what's the amalgam that a white politician's going to say to like not have to engage with racism, whatever that is. He said that. Um, and so, yeah, so, so Patrick Brown, uh, is kind of a litmus test and, and that's where conservative politicians, small C conservatives that, that runs the, 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 the gambit of political, uh, parties. Um, and that's where he's at. Um, I want to just touch quickly on this question of collective, why has there been such little action, uh, collective action in labor? Um, in Quebec, the Nurses Federation blocked both major bridges in Quebec City and Montreal uh, to, to tell the government to, like, do something. Um, there has been some pretty impressive uh, collective labor action in Quebec uh, within healthcare workers. Um, but, yeah, by and large, labor has been absent. I think that labor is in a situation right now where they are struggling and they are worried and their membership is losing their jobs and, and there, there's a crisis of like relevancy. Like how do we stop this? And leadership within labors tends to be very conservative. And so you will see wildcat strikes rarely. And it's really too bad because right now is the moment where we should be seeing these far more often, far more often. I had a conversation today, um, with, uh, a, a former NDP member of provincial parliament in Ontario, a named Sherry DeNovo. And, uh, and we were talking about with Andrea Houston, who's an, who's a Toronto based, uh, a journalist and activist. And it was just like, yeah, where is labor? Labor's nowhere and n- almost nowhere. And I think that we need to push, if we are labor members, we need to push our leadership to do something, to do more. And if we're not union members, then we need to be calling this stuff out and saying like, you know, you should be shutting down, shutting down industries. And I'll just end this part by saying, um, if you want to see an example of what labor could be doing, although some labor is involved in this, it's the work that that migrant justice activists are doing all across Canada. Uh, thanks to the, the that work that migrant justice activists are doing, and that's that's groups. I mean, that's that's small small town groups. That's that's national, provincial federations of groups. That is, as I said, some unions. They have made the migrant worker issue, migrant workers' voices, uh, the precarity faced by migrant workers, especially seasonal migrant workers, uh, impossible to ignore. And because of that. Uh, the average Canadian has heard about the difficulty, the precarity, the danger of uh, being a, uh, especially a seasonal mi- migrant worker, but in, in, in general as well, temporary migrant worker in this country. And so where is labor? Like they need to really step up and, 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 and I don't know, like stop freaking working. <laughs> I don't know, like use the pandemic as an example or as an excuse to finally do something radical i don't know yeah i also think that there's a way that um a lot of labor in canada has attached themselves to this idea of being close to the center because it's like the more reasonable place to be like yes of course you know we're labor so we're naturally leftist but we also you know we want to make sure that our membership um labor often thinks that their membership is centrist um we want to we want to make sure that our membership is comfortable and because we want to make sure our membership mm-hmm. is comfortable we can't do the whole maximum program um so we'll we'll just do a little bit over here which is like one i think it's a myth 
the the way that labor understands the membership. I think that people, uh, you know, labor needs to give their membership an opportunity um, to to weigh in uh, from where they truly are at. I think that people do understand radical politics as as you know. We just have to have those conversations. Um, I also think about just how dangerous it is to like to attach oneself to this like weird idea of a center there is no politics in the center the politics of Mm -hmm. the center is um literally a politic of not ruffling feathers well if your entire membership is hurting because they're not being respected by their employers and the government is not doing anything to make sure that uh that the that the to flatten the curve for their particular demographic. Well, that is the time. That is the place where we need well-resourced organizations like labor to go balls to the wall and just really, uh, you know, do everything that they can to force power uh, to change the way that they're operating. And unfortunately, that's that's not what's happening right now. And if you are part of a union and that's not what's happening, you need to demand better from those unions. It's, um, you know, the, the idea of, of centrism also is really interesting uh, with respect to what's been happening with the Black Liberation Movement and the ideas to defund the police. Um, it's, it's really fascinating being in L.A. right now because they're actually... Um, the Americans are behind Canadians in the discussion of defunding the police. Um, well behind. They're like where we were in May. And so uh, Canadians have, you know, uh, according to public opinion polling and just um, how people are discussing the issue of defunding the police, people understand in Canada now, they didn't originally, but they do now, that that is a valid conversation to have. And we're seeing this attachment to centrism in the United States. Now that the Democrats have won the, I don't know why I I just air quoted Democrats. It's just Democrats. Now that the Democrats have won (laughs) the election. See, this is why you can't turn the cameras on. This is why we're on podcast. Okay. (laughs) Um, Now that the Democrats have won the election Uh, You know, a lot of Democrats are putting a lot of energy behind stop saying defund the police. It's riling people up. It's not the right language. It's it's too difficult. It is um, it's too aggressive and so on and so on and so on. You know, like what one of the most successful fucking slogans in the world. You wouldn't be talking about any of these issues if it wasn't for people, black people refusing to phrase it any differently. Come on. We have to be willing to imagine and demand better, just basic betterment for all of us and not not some attachment to centrism just because there's no there's no philosophy. There's no um, politic behind that. It sounds like you are supportive of building back better. Oh, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Stop it. Okay, (laughs) I've been thinking a lot, says Kelly, about how virtual university has hampered student organizing. Have you seen any strong examples of people pivoting to virtual student organizing? Uh, So I personally am like pretty opposed to the idea that we can pivot online. Um, I think during the pandemic, we've had very little choice. We've had to. But the reality is, is that the best 
activism is still in person, even during the pandemic. I mean, Black Lives Matter demonstrated that in this incredible like, hey, everybody, we've all been locked down for three months. But guess what? This is important enough. We're going to go outside. We're going to do this safely and we're going to start demonstrating again. Um, I think certainly as university is online, everything right now is online. And so maintaining relationships and finding ways to stay in touch and maybe doing reading groups or or debate circles or or whatever, staying in touch with people running running virtual campaigns, if you can, is really important. Um, but I, I am very hesitant to say that there are excellent examples of digital organizing because a lot of those examples are known. Um, you know, like there's big hashtag campaigns that people are aware of, um, like, you know, like me too, or, or whatever. Um, but the reality is, is that we, we still need to do that in-person work. And I think that the biggest barrier to, uh, to student activism right now is not, online versus real life, but it's tuition fees. It's the ability of students to take risks and to confront the status quo and to get organized because the student movement right now all across the country is uh, in a very difficult situation. I think that it's uh, safe to say that it has not been this disorganized in decades. And I don't think that going online is going to save it. I think that there are more fundamental problems to it and figuring out how to organize students who feel like they can't miss class because if they miss class, it's like $800 down the drain. Um, how do you balance that reality with, with then saying, no, 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 we actually, we actually couldn't go on student strike. We actually can occupy this thing. We actually can do these things. Right. Um, there's, there's a very big barrier that neoliberal economic policy has made like around student activism that, that is, that is, uh, that's gotta be surpassed. Yeah, I'm, you know, a little bit um, sad about where the student movement is at in Canada right now. It's like, look, if in a pandemic you can't uh, fervently call for free education, yeah, what the hell is going on? It's it's very similar to what's happening with labor, maybe. I don't know. But it, it, there is no strong free education campaign right now. And there should be. So if you're a student listening, please get on that and do a strong campaign around free education. Um, Emily asked where I got my shirt. It's from Black Lives Matter LA. <laughs> it's from Black Lives Matter LA. <laughs> um, they give it to their members. I, I don't think you can get it otherwise. I'm sorry. <laughs> but maybe maybe we'll figure <laughs> out a way uh, to, to get some merch to you. I'll, I'll talk to the folks um, there and, ah. and ask if there's a way to do that. That'd be a nice, that'd be a nice thing for us to give away. Yeah, it would. Maybe we can like uh, fund, fund a little project for BLMLA somehow. So thanks for asking that. Andrea mm. asks, how has our relationship evolved over the show? Has it changed? How do we hold each other accountable in moments of political conflict? It's right into the, the, you know, chest. <laughs> well, I, you know, when we were in the same city, I used to just um, slap her. But now that we're not, um, no, Nora and I have, <laughs> Nora and I have never been physical with each other in that way. Um, no, or, <laughs> I, I've been. I was <laughs> yeah, not in that way. In, in that so, way, it was a weird qualifier to put in the end of that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, of all the chair people that I worked with, because I was there's Sandy was the chairperson of the Canadian Federation of Students. It was not Sandy that punched me several times uh, in the head. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to that person. See that um, and so, uh, another another disadvantage for not having a live show <laughs> because that would have been a post recording conversation. But unfortunately, none yeah. of you will benefit from that. 
<laughs> no, no, you'll have to just invite us back next year when we all have been vaccinated with three different vaccines, which is my plan, by the way. I'm, I'm taking them all. Like, I think that they're all going to be safe and great. Um, how has our relationship, Sandy, how, how has our relationship changed? I don't think it has. No. I don't think our, our relationship hasn't changed at all. I mean, we're like older, which you think would add a level of maturity to us. But I think we have been like, Nora and I are very similar. So if, if you're like me, you've reached the current level of maturity at around what, 13, 14 years old, and then just like, <laughs> fucking <Yeah>. stayed there <laughs> your yeah. whole life. You know, Nora and I, our, our, we were, you know, I don't know, for whatever reason, we were really fast friends and um, we're both weirdos and have uh, like this weird, similar background. Like we were both a part of this weird Canadian choir scene. We both had very strange uh, experiences in uh, in Southern Ontario's gifted program, um, which is not the same as everywhere else. I know that in some places it's just about, you know, your ability to pass like some sort of like really difficult aptitude academic test, but there's like a psychological component to the Ontario <laughs> way that they do things. And you're actually considered um, to be like neurodivergent. And so <laughs> that, that is, um, you know, a part of our history that, you know, helped us to when we met each other it was like, oh, another person like me. Um, you know, we were both in bands when we met and would perform, you know, like it, we just had this weird set of uh, things that made us very similar at the same time are obviously very different people um, uh, that made for uh, Nora is funnier. Nora is funnier. Um, <laughs> that made and my patience is thinner. Okay, so uh, <laughs> that made us, you know, uh, very quick friends and uh, uh, deepened our relationship almost instantly. Do we disagree? I think less now than we used to. But it was it was the kind of relationship. I remember one of the things that I really appreciated about working with you, Nora. Uh, Nora was uh, while I was chairperson of the Canadian Federation of Students. Nora was the communications, communications and government relations staff person. And the first thing I wrote that was supposed to go out publicly, she like, she, <laughs> she, she, uh, she was the, the first person to edit it. And so she it was like red marks all over the page. And I'm a fucking good writer. Okay. So it was like, what the fuck? So red marks all over the page. And at points, on the page, it said, like, what the fuck is this? What does this mean? Uh, no. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And I was like, I love this girl. <laughs> She's so honest. Like, and, and we were very much from the very beginning uh, committed to being that level of honest with one another because it meant that whatever it is that we produced that was going to go out into the world where we were trying to shift power, where we were trying to have an impact on the world was going to be the best possible version. So I could call Nora into my office and be like, what, what, what do you mean you didn't fucking get this? It's so obvious. And like have the argument with her. And if I didn't win, then that meant that my shit sucked. And if she didn't win, it meant that her argument wasn't that great. And um, often we would find some sort of compromise. And that's the kind of commitment uh, to, to political excellence that we just have over here <laughs> in this in this. Uh, Nora Sandy relationship. Yeah, although it made us really unpopular, though, too, right? <laughs> there were folks that couldn't 
that couldn't handle um, our way of doing things. And so we'd walk into meetings and people were like, well, you guys always agree with each other. And it's like, no, no, we, <laughs> you know, how the office door was closed for a while. Like we were just fighting. We were just fighting over this. Um, but people really, I think were uncomfortable um, within the student movement. I think that still there's definitely uncomfortable, uh, uncomfort, discomfort ugh, around uh, uh, some of this stuff. Um, which is this ability to have a debate. And so that question is, how, how do you hold each other ac accountable in moments of political conflict? Um, I don't ever feel like I need to hold Sandy accountable or, or even feel like I need to be held accountable. Like it's, it's a like if we're debating, like, I think that because the, the ground rules are so obvious because we have such a, a clear location from which we're having these discussions that, uh, I mean, we've never fought, I don't think, like as a, like in an interpersonal way. I mean, oh no, we did once, we did once, which was totally my fault um, because um, we missed the last flight out of Sudbury. <laughs> I can't believe I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. That was that really was bad. <laughs> You never held me. You never held me. Yeah, you did hold me accountable. You held me accountable on the twelve-hour bus ride uh, all the way home from Sudbury that we had to take um, because we missed the flight. Because I was sure it was at whatever time it was. And I at. even asked, "Did you double check the time?" And you said, "Of course I did." <laughs> and then we went, and the flight was gone, and I was very angry. That was the only time we fought, though. Yes, it's true. <laughs> yeah, and we all we both got sick on that bus. <laughs> It's just a terrible night. <laughs> that was the worst. We ro roll in at Yorkville, which is a mall north of Toronto at, at 6 a.m. And you're just like, I want to die. <laughs> it was terrible. That yeah. was the worst. Oh, gosh. Okay. Next question yeah. from Joe Clark. The podcast has so much great media criticism along your political insight. How, Alongside your political insight, sorry. How do you see the role of media critique in political activism? Critical. It's critical. It's a basis yeah. for understanding. Yeah, I think, you know, so much of our world is shaped. Sorry, our entire world is shaped through media. Our entire world is shaped through media. Media is so important. Even if you are not a big consumer of the news, you will get the news. It will be filtered down to you through whatever filters it needs to get to you. But whatever you're hearing about the world is coming to you through some sort of whether it's mass media or alternative media. So like it is so crucial for all of us in this world today to have some sort of media literacy. Um, and part of what Nora and I are doing on the show is providing that um, that ability to critique media, to be media, to be literate about the media uh, by telling you how we think about um, the things that we are seeing uh, on the news and how we understand the way that power is influencing what you see on the news or what you see getting to you through whatever medium it gets to you. And I think that's, be you know, maybe that's because Nora was the communications director and I was often the person on screen when I was uh, at the Canadian Federation of Students, like responding to media calls. So much of our relationship um, started with uh, just being deeply critical of the media because we had to be knowing, understanding that just because we said 
the Canadian Federation of Students believes in free education didn't mean that the interview that we were going to have was going to be about free education at all. Understanding that just because the media reported uh, that the Ontario government had decided to implement free education didn't mean that the Ontario government implemented free education at all, um, which was something that happened closer to 2010 or maybe 2012, uh, about 2011, 2012, the government announced that they had implemented uh, free tuition. The media uh, reported it as though it was fact, but it was not fact at all. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, uh, understanding just how media could be manipulated so easily. Yeah. You know, really helped us to develop our own uh, media literacy and the way that we talk about the media on the show. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, I'll I'll move to the question about the NDP's wealth tax and why is something so popular not able to pass within the House of Commons. There is a very interesting dilemma, I would say, within the NDP in the fe- in the federal NDP um, as a party that is in opposition. They don't really seem to know how to be an opposition party. Like, is the NDP going to get a wealth tax passed through three other parties that hate the NDP? Probably not. Um, and so what I what I like, so why would it not pass? Well, because the, the liberals serve capital, the liberals serve the, the richest people in this country. Of course, they don't want a wealth tax. The conservatives are best friends of these guys. Of course, they don't want a wealth tax. So then why is something so popular not going to pass? That's that's prior that priority reason. Number one. I mean, the block not supporting it is actually historically very weird because the block comes from a social democratic tradition. So that is just more related to the block like. Like we say in Quebec, le grand dérapage, like there's just been this slide from the block into obscurity and political shittiness, ultra shittiness. Um, but I think that the real the real question that I have for the NDP is it's like what other tactics can they be taking than put like putting forward motions that will never pass and then and then being able to claim a moral victory? Because it seems like the NDP is chasing moral victories and it's like, nah, now is not the night the right time for moral victories. Um, like can you can they be filibustering? Can they be um uh clogging up committees? Can they be um I'm not sure, protesting in some way to try and make this stuff become more mainstream or during a pandemic, should they be talking about like their bread and butter issues or should they pivot towards being the party saying, no, no, you need to give every single Canadian a food box and money and they all need to stay home. And here's the research. And we know that this is the only way that people will stay safe. I just, um, I I just, I see a lot of their motions as being kind of gimmicks. I don't know, Sandy, if you would agree with that, or maybe you've got a different take, but I I'm just maybe, and also maybe I'm just too cynical, but I just don't see that tactic being what, we need right now because we know it's not going to work. We, we know that a pharmacare motion from the NDP is going to fail. Um, and so if we know that, then how do you maneuver in such a way that might get, get you further, I guess. I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. The thing about these motions to me is that I, I like, I think that they should happen. I do. I think that the motions should happen because it's good to have a record of that historically if people are looking back it's like good to document where where officially on the hanser the ndp was at a particular time i think that the ndp puts too much effort behind those motions though i think that where the party needs to 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 be and what they need to be comfortable doing which i think that you know they may not be so comfortable doing right now is the kind of tactic that the ANC took 
in South Africa when they were really doing a lot of organizing against apartheid, which is like a big piece of their organizing as a party was we are going to do educational work amongst our base. And so if the base of the NDP is supposed to be the working class um, of Canada, then they need to establish connections with the working class of Canada. And if it's the case that they're hearing, okay, well, you know, uh, the black community, for example, is in favor of defunding the police and the indigenous community is in favor of defunding the police. Okay, we look at the arguments. It looks like this is uh, a great argument. And then they look at um, the, the Canadian population and they say, oh, well, maybe the whole Canadian population isn't for this. They have two options. They could, one, say, we are going to be a part of educating the Canadian public to make sure they get to where they need to be so that black people and indigenous people are not the only folks who are shouldered with this responsibility. And the second option is they could say, well, ugh, if we're going to get this political power, if we're going to get these votes, we're going to need to distance ourselves from this uh, particular ask because it's just too risky. And I think that the NDP time and again decides on that second option. It's just too risky for us. We, we can't talk about um, defunding the police. It's just too risky for us. We can't um, f- foreground a campaign to, I don't know, decriminalize all drugs, which they did foreground, to be fair. Um, we can't foreground uh, a campaign around, um, you know, whatever it is, sick days, um, more time off during the pandemic, um, you know, childcare, whatever it is, because it's too risky. Like Canadians aren't there yet. Look at the polls, whatever it is. I think that parties have more of a responsibility, you know, radical parties, parties that are, um, uh, are committed to social change and not just uh, gaining power, have a responsibility to be a part of what that social change looks like. You know, if you are leading a national party, you have a lot of opportunity to reach an audience, more power than so many of the activists who are struggling every day to get someone to pay attention. You know, gosh, I don't even know if there's been media about the the tent city that's going on in Ottawa right now. Um, activists, black and indigenous activists have taken over an intersection, have been there for over 24 hours um, to, to talk about, you know, what's happened to... Anthony Ost, who was the victim of a, a, a no-knock warrant that the police executed in Ottawa and died, a young black man, um, after the police executed a, a no-knock warrant in Ottawa. So that's happening right now. You know, they're they're desperately trying to get people to pay attention to this 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 situation. The NDP could be a part of making sure that people pay attention to that by saying, "Look, we agree with this campaign," and. Man, like, yeah, we're going to take the political risk to say that we agree with this campaign and all of the folks who have the riding associations across the country, we're, we're, we're organizing educationals about it. There's going to be workshops. We're connecting you with the activists on the ground. That could be a part of the way that the NDP moves forward on these things. And instead, I think they're, they're putting a lot of effort behind the tactic of what happens in the House, which unfortunately only a certain small subset of political nerds in the Canadian population are paying attention to. Yeah. And and like 90% of them are liberals. (laughs) So that's not even, yeah. And 25% of them are me and Nora. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which we're not impressed by it either. Okay. Um, so uh, it's already, I mean, I'm in the Easter time zone, so it's like almost midnight, but it's already almost oh, wow. the end of the show. And so we have enough time for one more question. Um, but I do want to just address two very quick questions. Um, I see Galen's asked about like, ideas of place to read and, and what helps us make sense of the world. We've talked about this on the podcast before. I, I don't have a good suggestion for that. I read everything. Sadie's said she, she reads everything. Um, I, I, listen to us, <laughs> just keep listening to us and we'll hopefully help guide you a little bit. Um, but, but do, do read everything because people read everything and to understand what people think you need to understand what they're consuming and, and how they're maybe formulating their, their opinions. Um, and the question from Scott, do you, Hey Sandy, do you miss being in your band? <laughs> I do. I do miss performing. It was so much fun. Um, yeah, it, we, we had a great time and we performed, we performed at the silver dollar. We performed at the opera house. Like we performed at these great it's places. Toronto. Yeah. It's very Toronto that don't yeah. exist anymore. And it's really sad. Uh, but, uh, it was, it was a it was a blast. It was a lot of fun. Who knows? Maybe I'll join a band again someday. How about you? Do you do you miss your band? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, I I, I was performing a bit on my own when I moved to Quebec City. Um, that has kind of stopped. Well, I mean, obviously everything stopped right now. But um, but yeah, my band was amazing. I mean, we had a lot of fun. And my my last show was at the Silver Dollar, which was this uh, legendary ba- um, venue in Toronto, which is now condos. And um, and it was a really great show. Sandy, you were probably at that show. I think I was at that show, yeah. It was yeah. great. It was great. It was fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so Hannah has one last question that I think it would be a really good question for us to end the show on. So Sandy, mm-hmm. podcasting is a historically super white and male medium. What makes it a good fit for intersectional feminist activism? And what makes it a bad fit? Can we say that podcasting is historically anything? Ah, great, great <laughs> answer. Too new? I don't know when podcasting came around, but I actually came th- to <laughs> podcasting through, uh, like a lot of people did, Serial, which is, uh, you know, um, was hosted by, uh, or is hosted by Sarah Koenig, um, who's a woman. And I actually, um, Nora and I went to this podcast festival, um, a women's podcast festival in Los Angeles, last year last year just before i guess we stopped being able to travel (laughs) um and uh, you know we 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 were talking at one point to someone who's doing a whole podcast on the way that women uh um use podcasts to investigate um the way that the law has uh has um just been a complete injustice to particular people. Like there's like this whole class of podcasts that are like, you know, like serial and others that discuss um, uh, some sort of carriage of injustice. And most of them are done by women. So I don't know if um, I perhaps have just like a, a, an incorrect understanding of the history of podcasting. Um, But I, I do think that, you know, there's this idea, I don't know if you've heard this before, Nora, but there's this idea in radio that women's voices are too similar. So you can't have too many voices that are women's voices on the air at a time because people won't be able to to tell them apart. Have you ever heard that? I mean, people, people can't tell us apart. Yeah, I know. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but ha- have you heard that said to you? I heard that said no. to me way back... Um, when we were uh, uh, working together with the Canadian Federation of Students, when they were considering having me and another uh, student person from 
a, a less politically good organization on at the same oh, time. Yeah. And they were saying that they couldn't have us both on at the same time because two women's voices can be confusing. And I had, I had never heard that before. Um, either way, you know, people have weird justifications for why women can't do shit. <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, all, all that that story is meant to tell you is that there's a lot of bullshit out there when it comes to uh, silencing women's voices. And so what makes it a good fit is that we get to do whatever the fuck we want on podcasting. We can, we can talk about uh, difficult issues. Um, we can talk about issues when the media and, you know, this has happened to Nora specifically, the media has decided we don't want to talk to you anymore because your ideas are too radical. Your idea um, that uh, people of color don't get treated the same way as, as white folks is too radical or your idea that defunding the police is a, is a conversation that's worth having is too radical. You know, a podcasting medium is so, it's so easy to like, you know, get uh, some sort of a hosting package for podcast and be, um, connected to so many people all over the world and so many platforms. And I think that that makes it a really good fit uh, for having these discussions that are sometimes sidelined, often sidelined uh, in traditional mass media. What do you think makes it yeah. a bad fit? You can't see us in my pretty purple hair. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that is one of the problems is if you're super hot, no one knows which... <laughs> is a real disadvantage for both of us because you didn't even know we were this hot until tonight, right? And you're like, what? Oh my God. I thought that they just had the voice. Um, which by the way, Sandy and I have a, like a hell of a, of a, of a couple of duets. Um, so maybe, I mean, that's another disadvantage of us not being live is there's no after party karaoke. Yeah. Always be my baby is a, is a oft, uh, is a duet that we would perform often and are very good at just, so you know, <laughs> yeah, it just it just seems so perfect. Like Sandy and I record a conversation that we that we have over the phone. Um and 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 just talking over the phone and then recording locally and then we produce this show and like look at the power that this that this like little show that could um has achieved, right? Before this festival, Sandy and I had never spoken to a journalist before. No one had ever interviewed us about our show. And um and as Sandy said, when you're shut out of the mainstream media, that's why this 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 medium is so perfect is because you can have an in-depth intimate conversation that is unscripted or scripted, but is not mediated by forces that normally try to mediate and tell you what to say or what to do. In fact, what you're doing often for us anyway, is, is we're feeding off of the energy of the people that like to listen to us, which is like really positive and, and, and healthy and, and engaging. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. And if anybody's interested in, in learning more about podcasting, like you can totally be in touch with me at any time and I can do my best to let you know. I mean, startup costs can run you from nothing to like $300 or $400. And, and even when you get to a level that's like really consistent, like us, we're still not paying too much money for our, our, our regular costs. So it really is an accessible medium. Yeah, it is. And I'm, you know, I'm really glad to to see that a bunch of our listeners have started their own podcasts. Uh, even uh, one of my cousins has started the Gritty Nurse podcast, uh, which is oh. a podcast to talk about nursing, which, you know, is really important right now. So check that out if you can. It's like really important for those of us who aren't, um, you know, uh, being not able to have our voices elevated by by uh, power again that's where you know power comes in uh, to create our own power <laughs> and and showcase it there so look thank you all 
for joining us tonight for the weirdest live show that we've ever done. <laughs> um, it's great to see you, Nora. Uh, it's great to, yeah. to share a drink with you over over um, over Zoom. And, you know, cheers to our first podcast festival. Um, may there be many more. And thank you all for being here with us uh, through this journey of this podcast. We are so appreciative of the audience. And uh, just one more note, I guess, for Hannah, it's like one of the reasons why podcasting, you know, I, I feel like if, if I was going to try to think of a downside, it would be where is power preventing us from speaking to, from having a conversation with our with our listeners? And they're not because we get to have conversations with you regularly, whether it's through t uh, whether it's through live shows or through the comments that you folks send us on Twitter or in our email that we then address in the show. So thank you all for being here and being a part of the Sandy and Nora journey. We love it. We didn't expect it to, to get to where it's at today. And it's just been such a ride. So what a beautiful, what a beautiful journey. Thank you.